did it. They did it. They didn't forget. Thank you. Uh, that would have been better if it was spontaneous, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> no, that's okay. No, I'm glad that I'm, I'm. I'm so glad to be here. I really am. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for, say, thank you for inviting me. I know uh, um, you have been um, just a, an inspiring part of my life too. Watching you uh, grow into the man that you are. Uh, I, I, I was going to talk about how long I've known Shay, but then I felt really old, and I don't want to feel old anymore. So uh, I have known him for well a long, long time. And uh, he's become an amazing man of God, and I'm just so proud of him. Uh, both my wife and I are. Uh, thank you again for inviting me here. I'm just praying that God is able to somehow speak through my words. I, I'm praying that my words will be his words uh, today, and that you will walk out of here understanding the love of God, maybe even a little bit deeper than you do right now. Uh, what I love about this place is that um, it's always about uh, about a God who's beyond our shame and beyond our guilt, and maybe you have walked in here and that's what you've thought about God. It's all about shame, it's all about guilt, it's about, all about what I'm not doing in life. And what I wanna talk about today is a God, maybe it'll challenge that, a God that loves you where you are, no matter where you are, no matter how you got there, a God that loves you and you surround you with that. When, uh, when uh, Shay contacted me and said, Scott, I'd love for you to speak uh, at Grumlice, I'd love to. Let's figure out a date, and we're kind of going back and forth what date would be best. Kind of July 1st, this was, seemed to be the perfect day. It was good for me. I said, what, what's, the, what's the series? He says, At the Lake. I said, that's interesting. Tell me a little bit more about that. He says, well, it's, um, you know, how some of our greatest memories of Michiganders when we go to the lake, you know, whether it's on the water, maybe it's the pool, or maybe it's, you know, on, on the boat. That's where our, some of our greatest memories, I mean, when you talk about, you know, growing up, some of us talk about on the lake. We talk about maybe a cottage we went to or maybe it was a cabin or up north or whatever it is. And those are the things that stick with us. And we love to tell people about what happened on the lake. And I said, well, that's very interesting. And he said, yeah. And he said, he said and the same thing with Jesus. It was the same thing with Jesus. Jesus had so many times on the lake. He was, all of, a lot of his miracles, a lot of his teachings on the lake. And it was so impactful. And to the disciples and the followers of Jesus, they, they, they just, it stuck in their memory and they couldn't keep it themselves. Like they had to tell everybody and it's, it not only had to tell everybody, but they had to write it down. And the first followers wrote it down, and it comes to us, and that's where we're sitting here today. Sometimes it was because Jesus was by the lake, all these wonderful things. And I said, that is a really good series. And he said, I know, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> and I said, good. And, and then I said, so I said, what, what do you want me to talk about? What part of the lake? And he said, I want, I want you to talk about um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is right by the Sea of Galilee. And I said, that's that's really great. And knowing that the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of long. It's kind of a long sermon. It's, you know, as far as Jesus goes, he's just really short, but this was pretty long. This is about, you know, two and a half chapters. In my Bible, it's about five pages. So I said, which part? And he said, all of it. <laughs> now, you have to understand that um, at the Green Room, the church that I pastor in Ann Arbor, we're just finishing up a sermon or a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're in our 20th week. So, I could either do an amazing, like, speed through of this, like a Reader's Digest. Anybody remember Reader's Digest? Do they even pub do publications of Reader's Digest? The Reader's Digest version of this. Or I could look at one verse. I look at one verse that encapsulates everything that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. This one verse that if you don't get this, 
if you don't understand this, if this doesn't make sense to you, nothing is going to make sense to you. And I think I'm going to go with that today. Um, and I want to pray for us first, if I could. Father, thank you for this moment that you brought us to. This is no accident, Father. There's no accident that these people, that I, that all of us are sitting in the seats that we are right now. We're here for a reason. We're here for a purpose. And you're the one who did it. Even if we're here tonight and we're not even sure why we're here today and we're not even sure why we're here, um, God, I want to acknowledge that it was you who brought us here today to this space right now. And Father, right now, we bring everything to you, everything, everything about our lives. We didn't leave it at the door, Father. We refused to leave it at the door. We brought it in with us. We brought the good. We brought the bad. We brought the ugly. We brought the sin. We brought the mistakes. We brought our failures. We brought our successes. And we're bringing it all to you right now. Right now, we bring it to you because we know, Father, that you can take it, you can handle it, and we want to give it to you today. Father, you were here before we even got here. You were in this space before we even set up. You've been waiting for us because you have something you want to say. Even if we're in the most deepest, darkest part of our life right now, even if we have no idea what we're going to do tomorrow, if we're even going to make it tomorrow, Father, we know that you surround us with your love and your grace and your peace. Lord, I just ask today that you open up our hearts so we can experience your presence right now. Right now, you're here. May we be aware of that. In your name we pray. Amen. First thing we need to know about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is so different than any other sermon that's ever been said or has ever been said. And the reason why that is, is because Jesus presents, um, presents a nature or an understanding of God that was different than what everybody else thought. Just totally different. I mean, sometimes opposite. Jesus presents such a radical, revolutionary God in this sermon a counterculture, counter-religious, um, counter-intuitive God. It was so revolutionary, it was so incredible that it would have sent shockwaves through the people that were sitting there and listening to Jesus. And not only shockwaves through that group, but it sent shockwaves through that region, through the world, through time, through history, all the way up to the moment that we're sitting in right now. Matter of fact, some of the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you have a chance, I'd ask, ask you to read it. It's in Matthew 5. We look at it ourselves today and we say, Jesus, are you sure God is like this? Because this is so different than what I've ever been taught and what I've been. Jesus, when he does the Sermon on the Mount, he's basically saying this. He's saying, you know, everything that you, you've heard about God Everything that you've been taught about God, everything that you've believed about God, I want you to throw that out the window, and we're going to start again. Because you've gone so far in the opposite direction that I want to tell you who the nature of God really is, and Jesus would know, right? And so he starts there. I just want to show you who God really is. Some of you have walked in here this morning, and you have an understanding of God. And you know what? Jesus wants to change it. And Jesus starts this whole thing off by saying, this is all good news. It's good news. So even if sometimes you're like, oh, is this good news? No, no, no. This is good news. It's good news for you, and it's good news for the world. So starting this series at the lake, why don't we dive right in? No pun intended. Actually, it was. I thought about that for a while. <laughs> all right. 
Um, so let's go right away to, um, we're gonna go to Matthew 5. Actually, we're gonna start a little bit earlier than Matthew 5. Often it starts in Matthew 5 chapter, or uh, verse one. Um, Matthew is the, the writer of the gospel that's talking about this. I wanna start a little bit earlier, and you're gonna get the reason why that is. So we can put that up on the screen. It says, so, um, actually I'm just gonna read from the screen since it's here. So Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Next slide. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, this is the part that we skip almost always, right? This is, this is the part like, okay, um, let's get through this part and let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to what Jesus says. Right? How many of you, just by a raising hand, how many of you actually read the introductions to books that you buy or that you get? Very few, right? I'm like that. I hardly ever read the introductions, right? If it's a page, page and a half, maybe, right? Maybe I'll read it, but I hardly ever, if it's more than five pages, I'm like, you just wasted a lot of trees because I am not going to read this. But that's, that's how we do it. We don't, we don't read introductions. This is extremely important. This is important, and there's a reason why Matthew puts this in here. Like, we've never been to these places. We don't, well, maybe you have, but I, you know, a lot of us haven't. This is not interesting to us. We've never been to Decapolis, across the Jordan. We've never, we never been to these places. Why is this so interesting to us? And the reason why it is is this, is because Matthew wants to tell you something. It is extremely important for the, for the author of Matthew to tell you this. He wants to say this. There were so many different people there. It was unbelievable. This was a moment in time when there are so many different types of people that came to experience it. So one region was highly Jewish and another region was very Greek. Another region was, was very wealthy and another region was poverty stricken. One region was very religious and another was not religious at all. All different colors, all different races, all different cultures, all different classes all different sizes, all different ages, all the sea of humanity. This is what Matthew wants you to see, a sea of humanity, all different types of people. Now, the remarkable thing about this is in Jesus' day, and it's similar to in our day, but in Jesus' day, um, you didn't associate with people who were not like you. Matter of fact, there were laws put in place that you didn't associate with people that were not like you. And here Jesus shows up, and wherever Jesus shows up, there's a sea of humanity. You know, we often think about the, start, the church kind of starting after Jesus leaves and brings the Holy Spirit, and the church starts, no, it starts right here. This is what our church is supposed to look like, a sea of humanity, all different colors, all different cultures, right? all different classes, all different ages, a sea of and this is, this is what Matthew wants you to see. And so we, we start off with this. Wherever Jesus shows up, all these different people show up because they have one common denominator, and that's Jesus. And it says, large crowds from Galilee. And now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, um, what's interesting is Jesus, of course, did not have a microphone. He was not amplified, right? I mean, I, I need a microphone to talk to like the 10th row here. And Jesus, in the open air by the sea, you ever try to scream somebody in the open air by the sea? They can't hear you. 
Can you imagine the voice that Jesus must have had on him? I mean, can you imagine how Jesus was reaching what we often call him in the theater world, reaching the back row? I mean, it must have been, his voice must have been so powerful. I mean, we look at the words of the God and how powerful the words of Jesus, but can you imagine the voice of Jesus that must have been reaching back like, I don't know, 100 rows, 200 rows, and all around him. When we think about, oh, well, he had to reach. No, it's everywhere. I mean, it's just, it just puts Jesus, I mean, he's already here, but it just puts him on a whole new level. And then Jesus did this. He said this. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what I want to spend the next few minutes on. Jesus, right out of the gate, says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Poor, 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 poor. Um, some of you know this. Some of you may not know this. Uh, the Bible was not written in English. English had not been invented yet. The Bible was uh, written in the Old Testament, written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in the language of Greek. This is in the New Testament, Matthew, so it was written in Greek. There are a couple Greek words for the word poor depending on what poor you're talking about. In the English language, it's interesting. We have one word for a lot of different things, right? We got one word for love. I can say, I love a cheeseburger in the same sentence, I love my mom. I love both of those things, but in very different ways, <laughs> right? And so, but the Greek, Greek has six different words, seven different words for love, which makes total sense. In this, they have, we have one word, poor. They have a couple different words for poor. One of the words for poor has to do with like the working poor. Like I'm just getting from day to day, barely making it by. I'm just getting from here to here to here. Not sure how I'm making the next day, but I'm getting there. It's not like you don't have a 401k, like there's no retirement plan, right? You don't have a savings. You're just surviving. You're getting from day to day Today, you're in survival mode. Some of you have walked in here this morning and that's where you're at, right? You don't have a 401k, you don't have any stocks, you, you don't have a retirement plan, you don't have any you know, savings to speak of. You're just working, you're just making from day to day. That is not the poor Jesus is talking about. The poor that Jesus uses, the word poor that Jesus uses is a different, a very specific poor. And the Greek word for poor is tohas. Everyone say the word tohas. Say it again, tohas. Tohas. Tohas literally means to have absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. It means to be completely, totally, and utterly destitute. Have zero. And, matter of fact, it comes... Um, from the, the, the root word toso, which means to fold or to cower. It's this image like the world has beaten you down so much that you got nothing left. Nothing. Nothing left. It's, it's at the bottom of the barrel. It's at the end of your rope. It is nothing Left. This is the place where you don't, you not only don't know how you're going to get to the next day, you don't know if you want to. That is the poor Jesus talking about. That's the poor in spirit. It's that dark. 
It's that deep. It's that hopeless. It's that ill. This isn't, this isn't like something that you strive for or you long for or, or you're trying to arrive at. If only I could be poor in spirit. No, you don't, you don't want this. You don't want it. You don't want it. It's the deepest, darkest, hopeless, helpless moment of your life. It is at the end of your rope. Some of you, maybe you've walked in here this morning and that's where you are. You're at the end of your rope. You have nothing left. You feel like the world has beaten you down and you don't even know if you want to get back up again. If that's where you are, if that's where you've ever been, Jesus is talking to you. Tohas. Now, listen. Tohas doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be uh, financial. I mean, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Like, being at the end of the rope can be a lot of things. It can, it can be relational, right? A husband and a wife. It can have to do with a family member, a friend who betrayed you, and you have nothing. You feel like you have nothing. It could be health. You go into a doctor with a routine visit, and the doctor comes back in and says, we found a problem. Taha. Nothing. It could be an addiction. You do something, you know you're not supposed to do that, and you promise yourself and you promise God you're never going to do it again, and then you do it again. And you promise yourself and you promise God it's never going to happen again, and you do it again. And it goes over and over and over again, and you become so frustrated with yourself, and you feel so much shame and so much guilt that you're at the end of your rope, and you say, that's where you are poor in spirit. You're at the bottom of the barrel. It could be this inner turmoil that you go through. Maybe it is shame. Maybe it is guilt. Maybe it is regret. Maybe it's a sense of depression. Some of you this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there. Maybe you are there. Poor in spirit. I have a friend. His name is Chuck. Chuck O'Connor. I call him a friend, but uh, that's not how it started off. Uh, Chuck, and, Chuck and I were about as close to enemies as you can get. I'm actually pretty embarrassed by it, but it's true. I won't tell the whole story, but um, Chuck, and I, Chuck and I kind of met, quote-unquote, um, on Facebook. Um, I had commented on a friend of mine, which I didn't know was a friend of Chuck's. I didn't know Chuck at the time. I, I commented on a friend of mine's uh, post that he, that he put up. And Chuck immediately responded to mine. And I'm going to be honest with you, it was incredibly uh, offensive and uh, insensitive in so many ways. And I should have just let it go. But I didn't. And I responded back, and, you know, in a way I probably shouldn't have. And then he responded back, and I responded back, and it escalated. And uh, I remember at the very end of it, 
um, I was just, I was losing it. And, and he, and I, I posted, and I, you know, I Facebook something back to him, and it was, ooh, it was a doozy. And I remember him right away, right after I sent it, he sent me back and he said, well, any friends of Mark must be a friend of mine. And I realized I had just sent like the worst one. And then, he, and then I remember text, I texted him back and I said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry, you're gonna get something right now, but that's not me and I'm so sorry. And then he responded back and he said, no, 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 you're just like all Christians I've ever known. Judgmental. I remember backing away from the computer. Like, what have I done? About four or five months later, I get a, uh, um, a face mail message in my messenger and it says, Scott, this is Chuck. I just want to apologize for everything I said to you not long ago. He said, I was going through a really tough time. He says, I deal with depression and I'm just sorry. And I, if there's any way that I can make it up to you, I want to do that. And from that moment on, Chuck and I became really good friends, just online, but really good friends, like sticking up for each other on face. I mean, it's just funny. And, uh, and then, so I began, Chuck and I began texting back and forth. I still didn't know him, and I'm, I, realized, I knew that he was an actor. I found that he was an actor, and I've been an actor for a long time, and uh, that he was also a playwright. And so we talked about different things, texting a little bit. And then one day, I'm, I'm scrolling down my Facebook uh, account, and I see that, I see that uh, Chuck had wrote something about his life. His wife had left him, took his whole, whole family, the kids. He had like a six and a five-year-old at the time, beautiful kids. And uh, he just put his whole heart on his sleeve, right? Just, just opened up right on there. Like, and everybody's, you know, on the you know, comments, I'm so sorry, Chuck. I'm so, if anything I can do, Chuck, if I can, you know, whatever, whatever. And then I just felt like God saying, you need to call Chuck right now. You need to call him right now get on the phone. Oh, I'd never actually talked with him. And so I, I did. And I got on the phone and I, and I said, Chuck, this is Scott. He's like, who? Like, Scott Cronover. He's like, who? <laughs> I said, you know, the, the Facebook friend that we've been going back. Oh, yeah, Scott. And we talked for about two hours. We talked about faith. We talked about family. We talked about his life. He said, Scott, you're not going to believe this, but you're the only one that has called me. Out of all of his friends, all of his family, I was the only one. And Chuck had gone through a lot of difficult stuff, not only depression, but he had gone through church and he had gone through a lot of the tough things that a lot of people hear about church, the guilt and the shame. He had gone through questions and challenges and wrestling with God. So that night in my basement, I just spent about two hours with Chuck and I felt like in a way I talked him off the cliff. A few weeks later, I get a call from Chuck and Chuck says, Scott, there is a new plague I think that's going to be coming into town soon. And I said, what's the play called? He said, The Christians. Now, I'd never heard of this. He said, it's, it's brand new. And it's all about this pastor that has wrestling with his faith and he has questions with his faith and the whole congregation has to deal with it. And he said, that seems like something up our alley. I, he said, do you want to go with that? If that comes into town, would you go with that with me? And I said, yeah. And so we made a pact. We made a pact. If that ever came into town, if it was in Michigan at all, that we would go together to this play. And that would be the first time that we'd actually meet face-to-face -face as friends. And it would be really, really cool. About two weeks later, I get a phone call. And they told me that Chuck took his own life. And uh, 
that the depression that his kids and his wife leaving him, that he felt like he was so at the end of his rope that there's no reason to keep going on. I was devastated. Devastated. Funny thing is, is, a few weeks later, I get a call from a director friend of mine who is out in Kalamazoo. And the guy says, hey, Scott, uh, we're going to do a show at Kalamazoo. I'd worked there before in this theater. And he says, uh, you probably haven't heard of this show before, but it's called The Christians. It just got in town. And he said, well, for some reason, I was sitting here today, and your face came to my mind about playing the lead for this show. And would you like to do that? And I knew in some way that God was involved in this. And so in the program, so I've just basically finished that show, and in the program, I, I dedicated the show and my role to Chuck. And then he got the piece that he wanted. And the thing is, for so long, I have wondered if Chuck had called me up that night that he was going to take his life at the end of his rope, at the bottom of the barrel, with nothing left, what would I have said to him? I've asked myself why he hadn't called me. But I've asked if he had, if he called me that night and he told me what was going on, what would I have said? And what I would have said is what I want to say to you for the next couple of minutes. When Jesus says, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about the poor. We talked about the, the poor in spirit. But we didn't talk about the blessed. Often when people say blessed, makarios, by the way, is the word blessed. When people say blessed, they, they often may be translated as happy or uh, fortunate. But this doesn't even come close to what this blessed word is. One, a teacher, a Bible teacher once told me, he said, the closest thing that I think you can come to, this blessed, is the divine I am with you. The divine I am with you. It's this, it's this supernatural closeness, nearness, and presence of God in the toss of your life. The divine I am with you. It's this God, this supernatural God, this loving, grace-filled God that surrounds you, that loves you right where you are. Right where you are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven right where you are. But this is the nature of God. The nature of God is to meet us in our deepest, darkest moments of our lives. Jesus is saying clearly right here, he is saying in those times when you would assume God would be the furthest from you, that's when he's actually the closest. 
in those times when you were at the bottom of the barrel, those times when you feel like you're at the end of the rope, those times when you feel like you don't know how you're gonna make it to the next day and you're not even sure if you want to, that's where God is. God is surrounding you there. God is encapsulating you there. God is, is one with you there. He is one with you. He's not just in the vicinity of you. He's not just in the presence of you. He's not just near you or close to you. He is one with you there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Some of you this morning need to know that. Some of you this morning are in the deepest, darkest part of your life, maybe for whatever reason it might be, and you need to understand that there is a God that is already with you, that you don't have to do anything to meet him there. He's already there because that's the nature of God. He's already there. For some of you, you've walked in this morning and said, well, there's certain things that I got to do in order for God to love me or to surround me or be with me. And according to Jesus, he's already there. And all you have to do is recognize his presence where you are, wherever you are. You know, all throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, we see this. God, God, being close to those are at the end of their rope. I don't know if you know the Bible well, but I mean, almost every single story when a person is at the end of the rope, when they're not sure how they're gonna get the next day and they're not even sure they want to, that's where they experience the power and the presence and the love and the grace of God, right there in their tohas. Matter of fact, in the book of Matthew, uh, the same, same author is there, Matthew 25, there's this moment where Jesus talks about that he's gonna be coming back. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to separate the world into two groups. Right? And the one group, he's going to say, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the people will respond to Jesus and they'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you in prison? When did we see you as a stranger? When did we see you like this? When did we help you like this? And Jesus will look at them and he will say, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Whatever you did for those at the end of the rope, at the bottom of the barrel, whatever you did for those who are hopeless and helpless and at the darkest points of their life, you did for me. Why? Because I am with them. I am one with them. You may be at the bottom of the barrel. You may be at the end of the rope. And God says, I am with you. I am not, I'm not just with you. I'm one with you. I'm one with you. I'm there, whether you feel it or not. I'm there. And listen, this is the best news. You want to hear the best news? It doesn't even matter how you got there. Isn't that amazing? That's totally opposite of what we think. What, what, what Jesus really means is he's there as long as we got there by good reasons. It, 
Jesus is really saying, what we think is Jesus really saying, yes, he's there in our tohas of life, but not if we got there by doing something stupid. Right? Not if we did but there by doing something foolish and idiotic. Not if we got there by doing one sin after another after another. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't qualify this at all. No, it is the nature of God to be with you in your darkest moments because it's the nature of God to be with you in your darkest moments. It doesn't matter how you got there. Some of you might be thinking right now, I, I, well, yeah, I'm there, but I got here because I put myself, it doesn't matter. That's what grace is. It doesn't matter. You know what this, it's all solid. That's, this whole thing, it doesn't matter God's going to be there no matter what. You know what? This is solidified in one of Jesus's, Jesus's parables. I, I, you may know it. I'm not going to go into detail with it, but Jesus talks about a story about a father and two sons. It's often called the prodigal son. And, and the, the, the father represents God, and the sons represent us, and the father loves the sons, and the and this, one of the sons decides he doesn't want any part of his dad anymore. He doesn't want a part of his life anymore. He wants to go out and do his own thing. He's pretty cocky and he's naive. And so he goes to the father and he says, Dad, I want, all that, I want all my inheritance right now. And you don't ask a father for inheritance before the father, you know, the father, father dies. You, you don't get inheritance before the father. But he wanted it now. And so his father loves him and he gives him the inheritance and the, the son just goes off. And, and the Bible says that he squanders it all. I mean, he wastes it all on what? Foolish living. That's what it says. He squanders it on foolish, selfish, sinful living. It is all about himself, and he wastes everything. There's a famine in the land. Everything is gone, and it's all his fault. And he thinks about what's he going to do, and he says the only, he is at the end of his rope. He not only doesn't know how he's going to get to the next day, he doesn't know if he wants to, and he's thinking, what am I going to do? And he has this idea, I'll go back to my dad. And I'll tell, him I'm a f I'll tell him I'm a failure. Now, what could be worse? What could be worse than being at the bottom of the rope than telling your father that you're a failure? And it's all your fault. But that's what he does. And he gets up and he starts heading for home. And the beautiful part of the story is that the, the father's waiting for him on the porch, basically, just kind of wait, just looking out in the distance, like every day. It's, it's, you're supposed to get this idea that the father's been sitting there for maybe years, looking out in the distance for maybe his son's going to come home. And sure enough, one day, the sun comes over the horizon, and his dad sees the sun, and he starts running toward the sun. Now, the son has this whole speech that he's supposed to give his dad. He's memorized it. He's gone over it. Can you imagine all through, okay, dad, I know I screwed up. I messed up. I did all these terrible things. I don't deserve to be a part of the family. I get it. I get it. I get it. Right? And he's walking closer to his dad and his dad's starting to run. And you can imagine what the son's thinking as he's running towards, you know, him. He's like, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. Where you been? Long lost son coming home. Yeah, he can come home, but there's some things you need to be doing. And he comes up to the son. And before the son can even utter what he wanted to say, the dad wraps himself in his arms, 
let me see. What could get closer than a hug? He hugs and he kisses him. He becomes one with the son. He doesn't even care why the son is back. Doesn't care. He never asked, no, so what'd you do with all the money? He never asked, so did you screw up? or did, What did you do? He didn't ask any of it. He doesn't care. His son is back. His son is back. He does not care. God meets his son in the place that he needed him the most. And he doesn't care how he got there. He didn't care what he did with the money. And he becomes one with him. Listen, this is the whole point of the cross. Do you know that? It's the nature of God to become one with us in our deepest, darkest, most hopeless moments. When we could not get to God on our own because of our own foolishness, because of our own selfishness, God didn't say, well, you know what? You got there on your own. You have to get yourself out of this. God said, I don't care. I don't care how you got there. I love you too much to leave you there. And he became not just close to us, not just in the proximity of us. He became one of us because that is the nature of to meet us in our deepest, darkest, hopeless, helpless moments of life. And he took our shame and he took our pain and he took it all on the cross so that we could have a relationship with the God of the universe because that's who God is. That is the nature of God. And if that is not good news, 